Alright, for this episode, we are talking about Don Bluth, which is one of those figures that, considering my audience and who I am, we are going to have to get to at some point or another. Personally, I believe that all of Don Bluth's films are at least a little bit uneven, but they're also ambitious, idiosyncratic, and deeply personal. I've talked about this in previous episodes. Uh, I think that filmmaking, in with almost very rare exception, is always a team effort, a particularly animated film. Still, Bluth's films come as close to an auteur effort as feature-length animation can possibly get. And for this episode, we're talking about The Secret of Nim, which began Bluth's career as an independent filmmaker and challenged a creatively stagnant Disney who held the near monopoly on feature animation since the 1930s. So for this, we're breaking down The Secret of Nim, precedents that it broke, precedents that it set, and how it plays into both animation in the 1980s and beyond. My name is Ryan, Surreal Deep Dive. All right, joining me for this episode is my sister Cheryl. Hello, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. Now, this movie was your pick. I guess we should start this off by having you explain why this film means enough to you for uh, becoming the subject of this episode. Oh, the whole thing is insanely beautiful. And I, I really love a lot of Don Bluth's films, but I think it's probably the most gorgeous and different out of all of them. Also, the animals in it don't have their eyes super far apart. That bothers you. I mean, I kind of like that most of Don Bluth's female characters look a bit like Liza Minnelli, but after a while, you're just like, it's Liza! And before we got started with uh, re-watching the film, you uh, talked about how you kept taking this out of the library over and over again. Yeah, whenever it was my turn to pick one of the videos that we rented, um, I would grab it. And then, like, when I got older and then I had my own library card, I was like, oh yeah, Secret of Nim. I haven't seen this film the whole way through since at least the fifth grade when we read the Source novel. So, yeah, this this was an odd experience for me. I remembered bits and pieces of it, but it was almost like watching it for the first time. I was incredibly startled when I found out that this was a book. I hadn't heard of that before. Oh, really? That's a first for you? Yeah, like I knew Watership Down and, um, oh God, what were the ones that were out when we were kids that were like super big, like the Badgers and stuff? Um, uh, blanking on that. I thought you were going to talk about Bridge to Terabithia or something. Oh, God, that was so sad. The Watership Down isn't exactly... Yeah, Watership Down's down a tiptoe through the tulips. <laughs> Speaking of which, let's break down the plot for this bad boy. The principal character in The Secret of Nim is Mrs. Brisby, a widowed field mouse who lives in a cinder block with her children in a field on the Fitzgibbons farm. It's a very cozy cinder block. It actually is about as cozy as a cinder block can get. She is readying her brood to relocate before the plowing begins, but her son Timothy has fallen ill. She consults Mr. Ages, a friend of Brisby's late husband Jonathan, and he diagnoses Timothy with pneumonia, cautions Brisby that Timothy will die if he is moved before he recovers, which will take about two to three weeks, probably well after plowing is set to begin. Now, on her way home, Brisby encounters Jeremy, a clumsy yet friendly crow. After basically appointing himself as Brisby's sidekick, the two of them narrowly escape Dragon, the Fitzgibbon's cat. Jeremy wins Brisby over when she loses Timothy's medicine that Aegis had mixed for her, but Jeremy manages to recover it. Incidentally, he, he didn't know what, that it was important. He just likes taking things because despite being a crow, he acts like a magpie. But also he was like, here, you dropped this, which was very sweet. He could have kept it. The next day, Mrs. Brisby discovers that Farmer Fitzgibbon
Gibbon has started the plowing early. Brisby's neighbor, Auntie Shrew, stalls her time by sabotaging the Fitzgibbon's tractor, but Brisby is aware that she needs to come up with a plan. She consults the Great Owl, who tells her to visit the rats living under the farm's rosebush. She is to seek audience with Nicodemus, the wise mystic who leads the rats. Jeremy escorts her by flying, which is not something she's crazy about. Mrs. Brisby enters the rosebush, but is chased off by the vicious Brutus, who has a little taser spear. She fares better after she bumps into Mr. Ages, and he just gives her his word. She first meets the very friendly Justin, who is the captain of the guard. However, she also encounters the ruthlessly ambitious Jenner as he's giving an address where he's trying to undermine Nicodemus's authority. See, the rats want to leave the rosebush for uh, better pastures, but Jenner wants to stay behind because they can siphon off the humans' electricity. More on that later. After agreeing to help Brisby relocate her home because it suits him, Jenner shunts her off to Nicodemus. Brisby is astonished by the rat's ability to use human technology, which prompts Nicodemus to exposit how he, Mr. Ages, the rats, and her late husband Jonathan were all captured and experimented upon by the National Institute of Mental Health, which is known as NIM. These experiments augmented their intelligence, leading to Jonathan spearheading an escape attempt. The subjects of the experiments also enjoy longer lifespans and a slow aging process. However, since they are now aware of human technology, they can't emotionally go back to just being ordinary rats. So they're just living in this rose bush, siphoning off human electricity, always under the threat of the humans discovering their capabilities and presumably destroying them. That's the secret. Oh, no. Thanks. You're welcome anytime. The rats are planning to leave the farm and live independently, and they're planning to migrate very soon. However, since they owe Brisby a debt because their husband saved them, they agree to also help her move her home before they take off. Nicodemus then gives Brisby an amulet that'll awaken when its wearer is courageous foreshadowing. Because of her connection to Jonathan, like I said, the rats agree to move their house, and in order to complete the move safely, Dragon the cat needs to be drugged. Jonathan had been killed in a prior attempt to do this, while Mr. Ages broke his leg. Brisby is forced to attempt this, since the rats are too big to fit into the hole leading to the Fitzgibbon's house, but they sort of roundabout trick her into volunteering. I read Don Blue's autobiography, and he spent a lot of time talking about that scene. It was very important to him. Mrs. Brisby does manage to drug Dragon's food dish, but she is caught by Billy, the Fitzgibbon's son, who uh, wants a mouse as a pet and just sort of shoves her into a birdcage. While trapped in this cage, she overhears Farmer Fitzgibbons converse with the NIM scientist over the phone. She finds out that the humans are wise to the rat's augmented intelligence and intend to exterminate them on the following morning. So she then sort of pushes out the little water feeder in the birdcage in order to tie some string to herself and scurry off to issue a warning. While this is going on, the rats are in the midst of moving the Brisby home with a rope and pulley system while the children are inside. Now, once again, reluctant to have the rats leave the rose bush and chance themselves in the great unknown, Jenner sabotages the ropes with the reluctant assistance of his accomplice Sullivan. This causes the assembly to fly apart and kill Nicodemus. Brisby arrives right after this happens and tells the rats what she's learned. This spurs Jenner to attack her and attempt to steal the amulet. Sullivan alerts Justin, who dashes to Brisby's assistance. Jenner mortally wounds Sullivan before turning to engage Justin in a sword fight. Jenner is then killed by a dying Sullivan who throws a knife into his back. The Brisby home begins to sink into the mud, and Justin and the other rats are unable to save it. Mrs. Brisby's determination to save her children powers the amulet, giving her the ability to raise the home single-handedly. 
Afterwards, the rats leave for Thorn Valley with Justin as their new leader. Meanwhile, Jeremy meets Miss Wright, the crow that he has been collecting string throughout the film in order to impress. Like, this, the, like the Wright brothers, or like as incorrect? As incorrect. Okay. Yeah, yeah. In his very first scene, he exposits about how he wants to meet Miss Wright because he's a lover boy. This sets up his character arc. He needs to learn confidence, but he doesn't actually need to learn confidence because she's just as clumsy as he is. And the final shot is the two of them flying off together. And they look pretty similar, so they, you know. She gets a Minnie Mouse bow, so you can tell which one's the lady. She's rocking the pony. All right, and that's the film. Before we get into the production, I figured since this is our debut episode about the work of Don Bluth and also the first film that Don Bluth made on his own, to talk about his career at Disney and what prompted him to leave. Ooh, drama. Don Bluth had worked on Sleeping Beauty when he was a teenager. After leaving for some religious work and working at some lower-end animation studios, he was hired by Disney full-time in 1971. If you are familiar with Disney period, this was not a particularly high creative point for the studio. He had worked on Robin Hood, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2, Pete's Dragon, and The Rescuers. Rescuers. Oh, plenty of people are very fond of those films. Every Disney film is somebody's favorite, just through endless repetition and cultural osmosis. Rachel wants to do an episode on the Rescuers at some point or another. However, Don Bluth was hardly alone in thinking that Disney uh, had fallen a step or two behind since their golden age, and he was always trying to push his fellow animators to try to recapture some of that lost magic of Pinocchio and Snow White, or maybe even freaking Cinderella, maybe. It's not my period of Disney. Aesthetically, it's definitely better looking than those films. I mean, I like the raw animation. I'm one of those weirdos that really likes the Sword of the Stone and the Robin Hood style animation. That'll be relevant in a, in a bit. Now, the turning point for Bluth was the 1979 short Banjo the Woodpile Cat. <laughs> Can you say that again? Banjo the Woodpile Cat. Bluth financed this personally, thinking that Disney would ultimately buy the film and then finance its completion. However, Disney wasn't interested, so Bluth cut ties with the company and founded his own studio. After completing the, the short, his next project were the animated uh, segments in 1980's Xanadu. Which I still haven't seen, and that's on our list. And that is a very you film. The film rights for the children's book Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim were offered to Disney in 1972, but the studio had turned the project down. Story writer Ken Anderson read the book while working on Banjo and got Bluth into it. Bluth pitched a Nim film to Disney, but they didn't want to make yet another cartoon mouse movie after, you know, Mickey and also the Rescuers. They also believed that Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim was too dark for a traditional Disney animated feature. Um, I mean, yeah, it's pretty dark. When Bluth struck out on his own, he convinced former Disney executive James L. Stewart to finance a NIM movie. Don Bluth Productions was given 30 months and a $5.7 million budget. This is very tight, especially compared to what Disney did. The average Disney film from that period cost at least twice as much. Still, at the time, it was the biggest non-Disney animated film ever attempted by a Hollywood studio. Was it, um, what was the company that did it? It was like United Artists or something? 
United Artists eventually agreed to distribute the film after it was completed. It was made by Don Bluth Productions and then financed by a former Disney executive who, I forget the name of his production company, but yeah, whatever. While the film was being made, the budget was cut further. Bluth and producer Gary Goldman mortgaged their homes in order to uh, pony up the additional 700000 to complete the film. Crews worked 110-hour weeks. The staff was about 100 in-house animators, and then other aspects of the film were farmed out to to about 45 people working from home. My wrists hurt just thinking about those hours. Holy moly. Bluth agreed to a profit-sharing contract with his animators, saying that they get less money up front, but then a percentage of the film's gross. This is not uncommon in live-action film, especially to lure actors into films with small budgets. However, The Secret of Nim is the first instance of animators getting the steal. Now, six months of the production schedule were allotted to develop the design specs for the cameras. Fourteen months were spent building and testing the cameras. Two special cameras were built just to shoot the backlit art in an anamorphic format. See, the way they accomplished all the various glowing effects that Nim is known for is to light it from the back and then just sort of rotoscope it in afterwards. Also, uh, as uh, Cheryl noticed, the bits with the tractor were very clearly rotoscoped. It was artfully done, but yeah. Yeah, it wasn't Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings rotoscoping. (laughs) It actually suited it because the tractor looked alien and menacing, which served what it was doing in a storytelling sense, I think. Oh yeah, the ominous farmer with his shadowed out face. Speaking of which, supervising effects animator Doris A. Lamper ran the very small crew responsible for all the spark, fire, shadow, and water effects, of which there are a ton in this movie. He is also responsible for the holographic effects and the the glowing of the amulet. A lot of this was accomplished using the multiplane camera, which he had talked about in Rock and Roll. This was used to shoot planes of the animation in uh, different lengths simultaneously in order to make the shimmering and the translucency more prominent and believable. However, there were shortcuts. Like 1970s Disney films, the crew used techniques such as photographing model sets and objects for transfer to animation, most notably with the tractor and the uh, rotoscoping. They also Xeroxed individual cells, uh, which is what Charles used to describe the sword and the stone in those various Disney films from the period. However, unlike those films, Bluth's crew linked the cells by hand in order to eliminate the animator's sketchy lines. Most Disney films from 101 Dalmatians to the Fox and the Hound have that sort of scratchy aesthetic, which, like Charles, I do have a certain fondness for it, but it it does look a little more rustic than, say, Pinocchio. A lot of people like the roughs, though. It's nice to see how the sausage is made in that one aspect. Most of the time, that's not how that phrase works. I was about to go into that. (laughs) One issue was the name of the lead character. As I said in the source novel, her name is Mrs. Frisbee. And somebody in Don Bluth Productions, after the voice actors had been recorded, decided to run that by uh, Whammo Toys, the manufacturers of the Slinky and also the Frisbee, the little plastic disc that you throw around, perhaps ultimately. And they weren't cool with this mouse character having a similar name to their toy. So the sound engineers had to go back in and modify the recordings after the fact in order to make it sound like all the characters are saying Brisby instead of Frisbee. Because, yeah, a lot of childhood toy companies at the time were like, don't freely advertise for us. What's really interesting to me about that is that that should have been a Happy Meal toy. That caped mouse should have been on a Frisbee. I'd have gotten one. 
Now, another thing that we, I wanted to bring up with the color effects, over 600 colors were used in the film. Brisby alone has 46 different lighting situations, calling for 46 different color palettes. Mr. Ages, on the other hand, only has 26. Oh no, only 26. It is stunning to me that The Secret of Nim costs half as much as, say, The Fox and the Hound, because it looks twice as good. This is a gorgeous movie. Oh, 1,000%. I was really pleased that we were able to find the uh, not-touched-up like version of it. And initially, I was disappointed. I'm like, oh, it's going to be all grainy and gross. But then we looked at it and was like, oh, no, this is beautiful. Let's stick like this. It looked like a VHS copy of the film, which does kick off our, you know, millennial nostalgia fix. But as Cheryl pointed out, sometimes when they go in and fix the grain, they often smooth out a lot of the details that give character to the film. Recent restorations of The Little Mermaid came to mind. Oh god, yeah, I have that version of it, and it really looks waxy and wrong. Also, I never fully saw that skeleton last time, and like now it actually does startle me. And I'm an adult woman. Before we go further, I should talk about the differences from the source novel in a little more detail. The first draft of the film, written by Stephen Barnes, was much closer to the book. For one thing, it included a rat named Isabella, who is in the source novel. She would have been Justin's love interest. So he's not, like, pervin on the widow? No, he's not pervin on the widow. He was supposed to have, like, a female rat that he was into. A second uncredited draft of the film would have implied that the rats were some kind of hallucination. Who's hallucination? Brisby's. Does she have, like, the knowledge and the courage the whole time? Yeah, or? it was like a wholesome Tyler Durden. Uh, maybe she also had pneumonia. <laughs> The supernatural components of the film were added by Bluth. They are not in the source novel. This included making Nicodermus some kind of a wizard. He's just a really smart rat in the book. Also, the entire thing with the amulet. There is no amulet in the book. It's a really pretty amulet, though. Jenner was made a bit more prominent in the film in order to give the story a traditional antagonist. Also, what I found noteworthy is that in the book, Brisby escapes the birdcage with the assistance of Justin. He basically springs her. However, Bluth thought that the story would be more better served if Brisby manages to get out on her own. Oh, yeah. Agency for the Widow Mouse. He saw the secret of Nim as a metaphor for the maternal instinct and how that can just sort of take over and lend someone courage and bravery. You know, the whole anecdote about the woman who was somehow able to lift a car if her toddler is underneath it. Oh yeah, that definitely comes out. And she has like this nice little arc. She starts off all scared and terrified in the beginning and then like at the end of the movie, she's the one that can tap into the magic. Yeah, next up, let's talk about the voice cast. First and foremost, Elizabeth Hartman is Mrs. Brisby, and she gives a very subtle performance, especially for an animated film from this period. Most people ham it up over the top, more on that later, but she kind of just underserves every line, and it, and it really centers and anchors the film, I think. Hmm, I absolutely agree. Producer Goldman was impressed by her performance in A Patch of Blue, which is where she got her first Oscar nomination. After she passed away, fans of the franchise have decided that Mrs. Brisby never gets her first name revealed, and uh, a lot of people have headcanoned that her first name is Elizabeth. Aww, that's really sweet! And getting back to Over the Top, Dom DeLuise as Jeremy. Oh, be nice, I love Dom DeLuise. I have affection for him, too. However, Dom DeLuise is just playing the person he is every single time in this. The Jeremy from the book is completely overshadowed. One passage from the source book that I always remembered is when um, Brisby, uh, well, Frisbee, first encounters Jeremy, and he's tangled up in the string like he is in the movie, but he won't admit that he's gathering the string because he's trying to impress a woman. He's a little sheepish about it, and Dom DeLuise doesn't do sheepish. I know, but you gotta love that, like, wheezy laugh that he has. It just fills me with joy. 
Bluth picked him because he liked his performance in The End, which is one of his Burt Reynolds comedies. I told you, it's just Don DeLuise and Burt Reynolds. they got to fill you with happiness. And they must have liked him in it because DeLuise just keeps showing up in Don Bluth movies. Yeah, isn't he the troll in the Troll in Central Park? He's a troll in Central Park. He's in uh, he's in the Fievel movies. He's in All Dogs Go to Heaven. He's, he's, a, he's in yeah, he's in most of them. Next person I want to talk about is uh, Derek Jacobi as Nicodemus. Producer uh, Pomeroy liked him in I, Claudius, uh, which is a BBC television film. He does have that sort of Wizenstock character, or um, I'm an old man with deep, dark secrets. He's just there to be an exposition fairy. As soon as he shows up, he starts explaining things to Brisby and therefore the audience. Well, like, I mean, he's also talking to himself, like, when no one else is around. Yeah, he's in his, like, little scrying tablet looking at Brisby, and we were both thinking, oh, he wants her to come in. Why didn't he just tell Brutus, hey, let the cape lady in. Don't throw your spear taser at her. The magic old blind mouse covered in sores needs to have his fun. Yeah, that's fun. I, I assume they're rewards, but yeah, I guess they could be sores. Next up, we have Peter Strauss as Justin. The animation team first noticed him in a production of Rich Man, Poor Man. I think he also has pretty much a stock role here. He's the handsome hero, and he's he's a little flirty with Brisby. Yeah. Yeah, well, when he's trying to, like, convince her, but not overtly, to volunteer to Drug Dragon, he's a bit of a Mac. Oh, yeah, and, like, when he's, like, leading them to the um, Chamber of Rat Conference in Noon, too, like, he's all over there, too. Now, what I thought was interesting is that after he, like, sort of wounds Jenner, he just turns his back and drops the sword and then just gives a speech to the other rats about how they need to leave and go to Thornhill, therefore giving Jenner enough time to sneak up on him with a dagger. He's gonna be a great leader. Yeah, yeah, he's... We'll get to that when we're talking about the sequel, because there is one. Uh, that leads us to Paul Shinar's Jenner. The staff picked him because they felt that he had a dark, powerful voice. Eh? Yeah, I don't really see where they're coming from from there. He has a very shifty, sneaky boy voice. Yeah, I mean, he's no, like, Grinch or anything. Even the bit where he's having the sword fight with Justin, and he brags about how, yes, he is responsible for killing Nicodemus, but he's not Uncle Scar. He doesn't whisper it to him. He just yells it aloud so the other rats can hear him. He's like, let's say you do kill Justin. The other rats just heard you confess to slaying the leader. I mean, he hasn't been subtle at any other point in the movie. All the rats make the joke about that. So I don't think that he was going to have a successful coup anyway. One thing I wanted to point out is that apparently after Shinar saw the character design for his character, he asked to re-record several lines because he thought he could make it more appropriate to what the character looked like. And it is an effective character design, although you pointed out that his eyebrows did not obey any laws at all. Going back to the Grinch reference, they look like they can fly off his face. All right, uh, then we uh, seg into John Carradine as the Great Owl. Uh, this guy is a well-regarded character actor. He shows up in a whole lot of John Ford westerns. However, the Bluth crew liked him for his Shakespearean training. He did a whole lot of BBC Shakespeare films, which I think is just rather obvious the second you listen to his voice. This guy likes to project from the diaphragm to people in the back row. Oh, yeah, I gen- I thought, remember I asked him, like, is that Leonard Nimoy? Like, he's got such a booming, like, effective voice. You can't let it go deep like Nimoy in some of his non-Spock roles. And moving on, Hermione Baddeley as uh, Auntie Shrew. Baddeley had the most experience of anyone in the cast. She gets top billing in the roll call. And Auntie Shrew's pretty badass. I mean, she's the one that disables the tractor. 
Yes, she does, and she also just single-handedly ties up Jeremy the Crow when he goes over to babysit, which Brisby sent him on just to get rid of him, and, you know, she thinks he's a threat. Badily usually played vulgar blowhards. She was character actress. That's kind of what she's doing here. This was her last film role. Shannon Doherty voiced Teresa, one of the Brisby children, and Will Wheaton was Martin, who's kind of the snobby Brisby kid. This is the first credited role for both of them. Aww. And one thing I found out that was very adorable is that Doherty, in order to get into her character, wore a little bow in her hair in the recording booth, just like her character. It kind of melts your heart a little bit. I'm a pro. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Moving on to the music. This is the first animated film scored by Jerry Goldsmith, who, if you're a film music buff, you know him best for his work on the Star Trek motion pictures, as well as Planet of the Apes. Now, he tried to approach this like a live-action film because he didn't have much experience with animation, uh, using lots of extended themes and structural development, string rounds underscored by brass, you know, very traditional Jerry Goldsmith stuff. Also, this film is not a musical number of the ways that it's different from a typical Disney film, although there is one Paul Williams song. It's sung while Brisby is tending to Timothy in the first act of the film and is then reprised by Williams himself in the end credits. It's just kind of there. It could be lifted right out of the film, although Cheryl is a big Paul Williams fan, so just hearing his voice was enough. I mean, big surprise, we did Phantom of the Paradise. Yes. Goldsmith, however, was frustrated by animation having the limited ability to give him finished scenes for him to work off of. He was mostly given uncompleted roughs in black and white, and new footage was constantly presented to him with no immediate context for where it's supposed to go. So, in a lot of instances, he kind of had to wing it. In retrospect, he talked about how this helped him grow as an artist, and he considered this to be one of his best efforts. Also, like, I like the, like, da-da-da, like, theme that he, like, slips throughout the movie. He does a good job with that. Yeah, it's a nice motif. The person responsible for adding the ambient sound effects was David Horton, who spent a year working on it. Goldsmith complimented him up and down, thought he did great work, just adding, like, splashing water and, like, humming animal background noises in ways that both contrasted and harmonized with his music in ways that he thought was effective for the storytelling. And uh, it should also be noted that Goldsmith was so impressed by Don Bluth's professionalism that he introduced Bluth to Steven Spielberg, who produced an American tale in most of Bluth's later films as well. Ah, sorry, I used to have a, you know, because that was my first movie. We went out to see Fievel Goes West. I believe the first movie I saw in theaters was Little Mermaid, but yours is Fievel Goes West, I think. Yeah, I was told that I was too young for The Little Mermaid. Because, you know, that's, that's a serious subject matter. All right, the reception of the film. Secret of Nim was met with nigh-universal acclaim from film critics. Lots of praise for the classically detailed animation and the willingness to stray from the Disney formula. There was some criticism for having an overabundance of superfluous characters. Jeremy, in particular, was the target of some scorn. Really? The comic relief? A bunch of adults didn't like the comic relief? Well, you pointed out that Secret of Nim seems a little embarrassed by this comic relief character. They keep trying to find reasons to get rid of him. Yep, and then they shush him all the time. It's like, are you gone? Are, are you still here? He's like, I guess I'll go leave now. As Cheryl mentioned earlier, Secret of Nim was picked up by United Artists, a branch of MGM. However, they barely promoted the film. They also tried to put it on a double feature with Tron, but Disney wasn't having that. Because <laughs> those two, that, yeah, that's definitely what I think of first when I think of Tron. 
Well, also, they tried to pair Secret of Dim, Don Bluth's first post-Disney film, with a Disney film. And yeah, the executives at Disney were a little sore with Don Bluth for cutting ties with the company and taking a bunch of uh, their best artists with him. Mm-hmm. For what really was the rusty dagger for this film was that it opened against E.T. and it was crushed. In some ways, maybe Steven Spielberg agreed to work with Don Bluth on an American tale because, you know, it felt kind of bad. I'm so sorry that I ruined your chances of success. The film ended up costing $7 million total. It made $14.7 million back, which is, you know, more than doubled its production cost, although that doesn't factor in marketing. Still, that was seen as a significant underperformance. It was released on home video the following year, 1983, with a VHS copy retailing for $79. How the heck did our library get one? In the early days of home video, film studios were afraid that the format would cut into the profits of theatrical re-releases, which is like the sweetest gravy train for movies. If you look at, say, box office data for Gone with the Wind, it's the highest grossing film of all time if you adjust for inflation. Now, it did make a lot of money when it first came out, but most of that money came from, say, every five years or so, they would re-release Gone with the Wind in theaters and people would go see it again. Now, they're afraid if you could buy a copy of the movie and watch it at home whenever you wanted, that would go away. So in order to try to stymie that if they did release a film to home video it would cost like 80 fucking dollars now this inadvertently led to the ascent of direct-to-video studios and the cult success of cheap indie films like the evil dead because when video rental stores and video stores first started popping up they couldn't sell you star wars so they needed to fill their shelves with something so a bunch of like rinky dink studios started putting out like really cheap movies and you know desperate for content the video rental stores would take anything like Chopping Mall. Like Chopping Mall. Now, the first major film to uh, bulk this trend was uh, Top Gun. When that got released on VHS, they gave it a very reasonable price. It was more like 30 bucks, and it sold a whole lot of copies, convincing film studios that releasing movies on home video was actually good for them. And then from then on out, home video copies were like 20 bucks, and that was the way things were until streaming changed everything yet again. In 1990, The Secret of Nim was re-released on home video with a more reasonable price point and actually a big marketing push behind it. This was the moment where The Secret of Nim started growing a cult audience. It is now considered one of Don Bluth's strongest movies, and Don Bluth himself has cited it as his favorite effort. Really? It wasn't Space Ace? I think he considers his uh, video game stuff to be a different horse, but, you know, he does have a lot of fondness for The Secret of Nim. He keeps talking about how he learned a lot of lessons on that film that he later applied to uh, other movies that may have been more polished, but, you know, Secret of Nim came from his heart. He was still a young guy, well, relatively young. I think he was in his early 40s when Nim came out. I was making a dig because I've never been able to get far in Space Ace. I have an angry vendetta against that game. I love Secret of Nim. It's beautiful. As I mentioned before, The Secret of Nim got a sequel. came out in 1998. It was called The Secret of Nim 2, Timmy to the Rescue. Apparently, Timmy, who gets like one line in this movie is the star in that one. I haven't seen it. Like All Dogs Go to Heaven 2 and the plethora of The Land Before Time <laughs> sequels, Don Bluth was not involved. Although Don DeLuise came back to voice Jeremy. Yeah, but if you just like give him a paycheck, he'll come back to anything. This film was universally panned and didn't do terribly well even by the standards of direct-to-video. I have learned that there has been a live-action reboot in the planning stages since 2015. Of the sequel? No, of The Secret of Nim. Okay, I was like, that's a choice. (laughs) 
Now, before you get too excited, the people making it are trying to model it after the animation meets live action versions of the Smurfs and Alvin and the Chipmunks, which sounds bad. Honestly, I was panicking for a second and thinking of like that weird live action cats thing that just came out. So it sounds a lot better than what my head came up with. (laughs) Apparently the Russo brothers are producing it. It's been in development hell for about five years as of this recording, but uh, the wheels are turning apparently. All right, that leads us to talking about the themes. Like that? More than that. My first thing I wanted to talk about was the corrupting effects of civilization, which I wrote in scare quotes on my notes. The rats are given higher intelligence and a longer lifespan, but gave a sort of Pandora's box you have being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, especially in the Mark Twain version of that, because they have become dependent upon human technology, which is at the same time makes them uh, vulnerable. Also, while this is briefly mentioned in the flashback scenes, it's a bigger deal in the book. They spend more time in the lab in the book, but the idea of all these animals being experimented on without consent and you have this juxtaposition of you know sad monkeys and puppies and kitties and they all get tortured by lab scientists you know we have better brands of shampoo but at what cost it hurts also the lab was the part that gave me nightmares as a child they're subtle and quick with it but like 13 mice get sucked up into a fan that's terrifying yeah in the book they spend a lot more time in that lab (laughs) all right next thematic thing i want to talk about is as i mentioned earlier that mama bear effect and the utility of courage which don bluth considers to be the main point of the film I think this is something that Don Bluth is kind of beating us over the head with. That amulet metaphor is not exactly subtle. Yeah, but he's a big fan of love. Like, you can see it in everything that he puts out there. Yeah, just the, that whole bit where, you know, she loses the amulet and the sinking mud along with the cinder block. But since she has the courage in her heart there all along and is awoken within her, it telekinetically, the amulet, lifts itself from the mud and comes to her and burns her hands a bit. She needs bandages afterwards. but Yeah, like she loses the skin on her hands. But she saves the cinder block because her toddlers are trapped under that car and she needs to lift it up. Justin's gonna have the burning hand amulet now. Yeah, yeah, he's probably gonna need it soon too. He's the captain of the guard, but he doesn't seem to have much administrative capabilities. Maybe he's the one that Timmy needs to come to the rescue of. (laughs) I kind of like that, yeah, they sort of just go by whoever's like the tallest, so if you stand on a rock, they'll listen to you. Yeah, secret of Nim and Invader Zim. (laughs) Another thing I want to talk about was darkness in children's literature, because fairy tales started out as cautionary warnings. Don't wander off into the woods by yourself because either a witch or a big bad wolf will eat you. Stay away from the water. Do not accept strange fruit from strangers. Although this is undercut by the Disney version of Beauty and the Beast because that old witch knocks on the prince's door and asks for shelter and offers him a rose. And, you know, in any other Disney movie, that rose would have been poison. You should have slammed that door in that bitch's face. Stranger danger, my parents aren't home, go away. But in that one Disney film, that ends up being the opposite of what you should do. Anyways... Those gory Grimm Brothers cautionary tales were sanitized by Disney adaptations, which have become the cultural default through their omnipresence, which in certain ways I think it's fitting that Disney rejected the source novel, at least partially because it was too dark for them. And I do think that helps Don Bluth just distinguish himself from Disney right away. Another aspect of Nim that I think distinguishes itself, getting back to the mama bear thing, is that 
you know, Mrs. Brisby isn't a young princess who is trying to find her way in the world. She's been around the block a few times. Her name is Mrs. Brisby. She's a widow. She has experienced pain and loss before we even meet her and has gone through a whole lot of stages. She's a pretty static character uh, for the most part. I guess she learns to be a little braver, but, you know, from the beginning of the film, she's pretty much doing the necessary things to protect her children. It's not like she learned a lesson. Yeah, and then, like, Jeremy refers to, he's like, you were young once. <laughs> I do like that, too. Yeah, normally, like, this Disney's all about orphans. No, we're not going to touch the widow, only the orphans. Yeah, the widow is usually the one offering you the poison apple or the poison rose, except you're supposed to take the poison rose, otherwise the good fairy will curse you. Oh, my God, she totally is a widow. I didn't even think of that. Sorry. Just- I mean, I just assumed that, but, yeah, she probably is. All right, that made me want to talk about a little bit the Disney Renaissance. Getting back to Don Blue's autobiography in a bit of a self-serving manner, he cites The Secret of Nim as the beginning of a 1980s cartoon animation renaissance. Okay. Most cartoon geeks that I talk to cite it as the Disney Renaissance. Bluth wants to be more general. He wants it to include him, which I think is fair. I do think that Don Bluth's films throughout the uh, 80s eventually pushed Disney to start trying harder. Oh, yeah, they definitely scare people. I do think that The Black Cauldron, at least partially from at least some of the people involved, was an attempt to emulate Bluth films at least a little bit. I can see that. I can definitely see that. They didn't quite figure out what they were doing until The Little Mermaid, but yeah. Yeah, Trailer Park Disney movie. That's my favorite tidbit about that. (laughs) And also, Disney went right back to, hey, let's have more cartoon mouse movies because Great Mouse Detective, like, less than five years after this. Ah, rat again! (laughs) Best Disney villain mouse ever! Rat mouse. Yeah, you were very disappointed that Jenner is more of a stock character and that he wasn't Radigan because he kind of looks like him. Radigan would totally wipe the floor with him. And there'd be a song. This, this conflicts with the urge to see the history of film animation as the history of Disney, which it is fair. Disney is a major player on that board, and most everybody else was either imitating Disney or trying to run in the other direction, which is a form of influence in and of itself. I talked about that a little bit with Ralph Bakshi when we did Fire and Ice. That being said, I do think it's a little self-serving. I do think Bluth's ego is showing a little bit because when The Little Mermaid had come out, I think it's arguable to say that Don Bluth had peaked as an artist. I mean, Becky will strangle me because she considers Rockadoodle to be one of the greatest films ever made. Cheryl made a face. I didn't, Becky. You you heard nothing. You heard no expression. <laughs> I guess The Troll in Central Park is somebody's favorite movie. Actually, yeah, my um, like grade school best friend was obsessed with it. I had to see that movie like a bunch of times. And I do give Titan A.E. an A for effort, and I don't think Don Blue's career should have ended with it. Isn't he trying to do something now? Oh, he's been trying to do something for like 15 years. I hope he does. He's in his late 80s. It would be nice if he could end his career on a high note. That would be lovely. That would suit my millennial nostalgia heart. But um, it doesn't seem super likely. Well, I hope so, because I do think he influenced a lot of young artists. Despite that crack about his ego showing a little bit in that passage in his autobiography, he seems like a super sweet guy. He's very encouraging to younger artists. Everyone who worked with him talks about what a wonderful, caring, influential mentor he was to them. And I do think that Don Bluth made animated filmmaking a better place for his efforts within it. I do think that he upped the ante and pushed everyone to be better than themselves. And I usually have at least one or two snags in anything he made, but he always swung the bat. Yeah, and, like, he definitely has that, like, Chuck Jones touch where everything he puts his hands on looks fucking adorable. 
And the fact that nobody could make all dogs go to heaven except Don Bluth, that is a very <laughs> unique film. And it's, he made it so charming. Like, even as an adult, knowing better, watching it, like, being like, oh, that woman's litter is entirely different dogs. Like, it was like, it's still cute, though. It's still cute. Uh, well, that's the entirety of my notes. Uh, is there anything about the secret of Nim that I haven't brought up yet that you would like to mention before we close out? The fact that all of the characters that have fur have fur that moves and is affected by elements in the movie blow my mind, even as an adult. Those 110-hour work weeks went to something. <sighs> okay, and if that's it, uh, that is another episode in the can. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another one.